0: Well, I thought I would finish off the series on Romans 12 this morning with uh, spending some time in uh, what I think is its companion passage in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's other great description of, of love. And uh, it's, uh, obviously 1 Corinthians 13 is the more popular of the two texts, but they say many of the same things. And what I want to explore with you this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 is the way that this great passage on love was especially geared in the context in which it was written to a specific situation and to address a specific, if you will, problem in the life of the Corinthian church. It was Paul's sort of sounding of the gong of what is most important in the midst of what you're struggling with as a church what is most important and he writes 1 corinthians 13 as the answer to that question both passages define love as an act not as a feeling but love is a choice to extend oneself for the sake of another and as my preaching professor ian pitt watson used to say the love that paul describes here agape love is the love that makes the loved one lovely it's a love that does something in the life of the loved one it is something that does something in the life of the one who is doing the loving it is a transforming kind of love because it is the love of action romans 12 in a way is where paul is saying to us here's who you are called to be in this world that knows nothing of the love of which we write because it is focused in first century Rome primarily around power and that is the organizing principle of culture is power for us says Paul in Romans 12 it's love in 1 Corinthians 13 what Paul is saying is here is who we are called to be as a church if you want to look for an organizing principle for the church of Jesus Christ it is this love that he writes about it's the organizing truth of the body of Christ and Here's what it looks like to be the church. Here's the most important thing. And I'm going to start by reading the text, starting back in chapter 12, because that sets this context of sort of a word to the church at Corinth. First Corinthians 12 is a chapter where Paul is kind of finishing out a discussion of of the church and some of the problems of the church at Corinth, Uh, Some of the things that they were wrestling with, they were were having trouble with the Lord's Supper and he writes a word about that in in chapter 11. He writes about spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and how we are one body and many members and he's addressing a few things there. And we're going to pick up in verse 27 of chapter 12 where he transitions to this discussion about love. And is saying, yes, there are these many gifts, but I want to show you a more excellent way. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed the church, in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, And love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, root us and ground us in your love. Help us to apprehend even just a piece of it that we might understand the glorious vision of why you created us. And then help us to receive what you have given and reflect that truth in our lives, in our world, every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the era of computer streaming of television shows, uh, we've developed a term called binge watching. Do we all know what that means? It's where we sit down, and because all of the episodes of a particular show are are on, uh, and available to be streamed, we just keep watching. And occasionally the computer even has to sort of put a little message on, are you still there? And we say, yes, we're still here, we're still watching, and it shows us the next show. And I must confess, and here's full disclosure, I have been binge watching. Actually, not quite binge. I only watch about three and maybe four episodes at a time. (laughs) But I've been binge-watching this show on Netflix called Greenleaf. Greenleaf is this name of a family about whom the show pretty much centers. All of its characters, are, or most of its main characters, are from this family. And the Greenleaf family is a family of a pastor, the bishop, Bishop Greenleaf, who has founded this huge african-american megachurch in memphis and the show is set in the context of this african-american megachurch and it's really set in the context of a conflict or a competition between two african-american megachurches in memphis tennessee so it's just the kind of thing that a pastor loves watching actually Um, (laughs) I will fully admit it's kind of a soap opera set in the context of these African American megachurches. And it's a story that really tells, although it's a contemporary story, it it really is an example of of a very old story in the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a story of all the brokenness and all of the secrets and all of the intrigue behind the scenes of these two large churches in competition with each other trying to attract the community to come in and give their offerings to them it's the story of what happens when the work of building a good church or striving to build the best church becomes more important than being the church becomes more important, in other words, than following Jesus. It's a story of when the church, what happens when the church distracts us from the primary mission, which is to love God and to love neighbor, distracts us in such a way that the church becomes more important than following Jesus. When the church distracts us from Jesus is when we start to try and make it in such a way attractive to be relevant to our culture and making that, the, that primary question of attractiveness and relevance the, the primary mission of the church. It's when we forget that Jesus calls us to something that looks more like a, a cross than an amusement park that we have trouble in the church and that's pretty much what this series is about but it's not as I said a new story because even in the first century the church was dealing with an early expression of this misdirected focus and Corinth is an example of one of those churches Corinth was into something that we would call today triumphalism they loved the notion of resurrection and victory but not so much the humanity of Jesus and the cross. In fact, they wanted to jump over that part as fast as they could. Let's get to the resurrected, risen, reigning, victorious Christ. Uh, None of this stuff that involves us with that dicey question of how a Messiah could die on the ultimate object of shame, a Roman cross, which is about nothing more and nothing less than saying Rome is God and Rome is all powerful. How in the world can that have anything to do with the victory of the resurrection? So Corinth Corinth didn't much like talking about the humanity of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. And that's why Paul at one point says in one of the Corinthian letters, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I'm going to rub your nose in this. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put it in front of you in every way that I possibly can. This this whole sense of denying that is just not going to work. And the other thing that Corinth struggled with is that they really liked spiritual adrenaline. They loved the ecstatic gifts. They loved speaking in tongues. They loved they just loved visions. They they loved higher spiritual experience and and measuring spiritual maturity in terms of the amount of this kind of spiritual excitement and adrenaline you could conjure up you know speaking in tongues and spiritual experience getting high on jesus if you will was what corinth valued and what they sought out it was a kind of addiction to spiritual experience and so paul kept bringing them back to a rootedness and groundedness in an embodied faith So in several places in his two letters, we see Paul calling them to direct their focus from themselves and off of themselves and onto the love of Jesus Christ. Here in the passage that I just read, we we pick up on his discussion of spiritual gifts in, in chapter 12, and he says, yes, all these gifts exist, and It's a good thing for the church that all these gifts exist and that we get to experience God in these various ways of prophecy and, and teaching and tongues and all of these manifestations of the work of the Spirit among us. But let me show you, he says, a more excellent way. You're a body with many members and many gifts and many manifestations of God's work among you. But all of these gifts... All of them need to be seen and evaluated through the lens of one organizing principle, one organizing theme. And that's the big gift that God has lavished upon us in the love of Jesus Christ. And so then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, after saying, let me show you the more excellent way. He says, I can have all of the the fleshly gifts. I can show magnificent signs of sacrifice and devotion. I can be a spiritual giant in the area of preaching and theology and faith, but unless it all flows from that source of the ultimate act of God's love in Christ, God's exertion of himself in the person of Christ for our sake, then it's not worth very much. In fact, he says it's worth nothing. And what Paul is saying to us is the church is not fueled by my sacrifices or my gifts or your sacrifices and your gifts. That's not what fuels the church of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're all doing our little thing and being little cogs in a wheel and spinning. It's that everything we do is flowing out of the love of Christ. The church is not fueled by my sacrifice or my gifts. It's fueled by God's love. And what is that love? Well, Paul gives us a little Reader's Digest version of all that he was saying in in Romans 12. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's kind of a restatement of that progression that we talked about in Romans 12 of humility and curiosity and empathy. Humility is manifest in things like patience and kindness. Humility is manifest in not wanting to grab onto somebody else's stuff or not being boastful about who we are or or arrogant or or rude. All of those things are the the absolute opposite of, of humility. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. That's a kind of restatement of that notion of, Curiosity. We're only curious when we understand that our way is not the only way. We're curious when we aren't sort of irritably and resentfully holding on to what we think is the only way or the right way. We're curious when we don't get judgmental by rejoicing in wrongdoing. That's about what judgment is, isn't it? Rejoicing in someone's wrongdoing and saying, well, I'm not that way. When we're in that state, we don't need to be curious about the others who are in our midst. And finally, it's empathic. It's something that we carry within us when we carry the feelings of another. We bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. We let it into our lives. Paul talks about the Philippians in a portion of chapter one just before what I read this morning and he's saying something very warm about his relationship with them. And he says, it's right for me to to say this about you because you hold me in your heart. That's the essence of the love that's being talked about here. And then finally, Paul talks about what lasts when he talks about this more excellent way. He essentially says, remember what lasts. Remember how little we actually know. Remember that God is God and we are not God. But God has loved us. And that's what empowers us. That's what sustains us. That love is the only thing that lasts. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know only in part, and then I will know fully, even as I've been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. That's what lasts. When I came out of seminary in 1982, one of the things that was front and center before a lot of pastors in the church in 1982 and for us as seminarians in 1982 is that the trend within the church was, you know, the church will be better if we really understand what all the spiritual gifts are and if we understand what every spiritual gift is and and who brings what And if we have a way of determining what spiritual gifts are, then we can organize it all into this marvelous database and we'll put it to work to be the best church. I Didn't like it then and I don't (laughs) like it now. And so there's been a, a sense of there was a sense of attention to Paul's lists of gifts, just tons of lists. And, you know, you, there's, a, there's about six different lists of, of gifts. And, and you've got to remember that when Paul wrote these letters, he was, in many cases, walking around a room and just being brilliant. And someone was writing it down as he said it. And I think a lot of what he did was just kind of said what was there. And, and so we have these lists everywhere, and they're, they're phenomenal lists. But they were never meant to be picked apart and dissected and organized into categories. They are kind of lots of words that describe a big truth, which is, hey, we all bring something. And so let's bring it. (laughs) And so what had happened in the church at this point is those gifts would get categorized. They would get defined. There was this thing called the modified house questionnaire, which you would take to determine what your spiritual gift was almost like a personality test and once the gifts were discovered well then they could be put in this database like i said and and then we'd have voila the perfect church because we'd all be doing something and we'd have everything that needed to be done done it's a recipe for building the church and to become a good church by discovering and deploying our gifts it's not a awful idea, it's just not the most excellent idea. (laughs) It's true, but it's not fully adequate to describe where ultimate truth lies. A few years into ministry, I was at a conference with Eugene Peterson and he was talking about spiritual gifts and he said, you know, I think we've got this thing about gifts wrong. He said, you get the gift of compassion when your mother's in the convalescent home. I see you smiling, Steve. (laughs) You know that story. You get the gift of compassion when your mom or dad is in the memory care unit. Because you have to have it. God gives us what we need when we need it. The fact that I maybe didn't have compassion show up on my modified Houts questionnaire uh, analysis doesn't mean I don't go to the convalescent hospital, does it? Doesn't mean I don't visit the memory care unit. It doesn't mean that I don't take the opportunity to grow in love in a place where I may not be very loving. You get the gift of compassion when your mom is in the convalescent home. Gifts are given to help us grow in love. Love is the fruit of growing up, as Paul describes it so beautifully. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, but when I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. Loving is an adult thing to do because it's becoming like Christ. It's growing up into the one who is our head. It's taking on the mind of Christ, that ultimate brain development of of what transforms our soul. Love is the fruit of spiritual growth. And what it is, is the sign that we're growing up. And if the church is about anything, it's meant to be about the business of helping one another to grow in love. And so that's why I want to end with a familiar text in Hebrews 10. My friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider, here my friends, is the charge to the church. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray. Lord, show us how you are at work, at work in others and at work in us, and help us to develop that sense of attraction to that work that we might take up your invitations and be your people wherever we are because we are participating In your love as recipients who can therefore reflect it to our world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.